Hi, I'm Samir Lakhani, and this is Phase 2, a podcast about quitting my job to find work that's more meaningful. Last episode, I explored my past to find inspiration on what type of work to focus on next, and I concluded that trying to build a business might give me the freedom and flexible lifestyle that I'm looking for. I've read and heard all kinds of advice on entrepreneurship over the years. I've known a handful of people who've started successful companies, from people who bootstrapped their own e-commerce businesses over a decade, and others who've raised a bunch of VC money and had successful exits. There seem to be a few fundamental principles that I keep hearing. The first is to find something that solves a real problem, not something that you imagine to be a problem. Y Combinator is probably the most prominent startup accelerator and investors in the world, and they talk about this a lot. Their slogan is, build something people want. CEO Michael Siebel strongly urges founders to focus on a problem they personally have so that they at least know that there's an actual market rather than an imagined one. The trick is to find out if the market is bigger than just you. Also, focusing on your own problem helps founders iterate faster because they can intuitively prioritize what features to focus on and to test whether or not they're solving the actual problem or not. The second principle is to have a concrete plan for acquiring customers and ideally build that into the core product flow in some way. If you need to pay to acquire customers from the get-go and you have a market of sufficient size, competition will quickly come and make that channel unprofitable. There are many dead products that no one knows about because companies couldn't cut through the noise to find customers. I talked to a friend who's launched three successful consumer apps over the past 10 years. He's built the ultimate lifestyle company of two people generating hundreds of thousands of downloads a month through some pretty simple looking products. He credits three main things to their success. The first is the high quality product. You can't get around that. You gotta solve a real problem. Second is getting into the Android app store as one of the only solid options in their specific category. And then third is a naturally social product where the purpose is to generate video slideshows for friends on Instagram, which gives them their, their product instant distribution. 97% of their customers are organic after many years in business, which is astounding. The final principle I keep hearing is to create a minimum viable product as soon as possible to validate the hypothesis and to start iterating. To do that, I'm going to need to build a team. My plan with this company is to try to bootstrap the initial prototype to see if we can get traction before seriously considering investors. I've received advice from several people that the longer I can avoid raising money and the more traction I can show in the product, the better my terms are likely to be if I do attempt to find investors. Doing that is gonna require me to convince one or two engineers to join me as co-founders to help build an initial prototype of the product. I started to reach out to former engineers I've worked with over the years. I'm looking for someone who is obviously skilled, trustworthy, and most importantly, interested in the area that I'm focused on. This person needs to have the free time and motivation to work on something on evenings and weekends, or that's insane enough to quit their job and actually join me. It's pretty difficult to find someone that meets all these requirements. Skilled people are in demand already and earn a pretty comfortable income. Many of the people I know who would be interested in this problem space have younger kids and little free time for side stuff. I did video calls with about 10 former coworkers to pitch them on my product. With each one, I shared my business plan, customer research, and product vision. I found that the best way to pitch engineers, who usually have a pretty high BS detector, is to stick to the facts and have a lot of humility about what I do and do not know at this stage. And obviously, it's early on. I don't know very much. Most of the people I pitch about the customer problem think that it is a real and significant one, which helped me to build confidence. One of the first people I pitched is my friend Jen, who's an experienced engineering manager that I worked with previously. She could relate very strongly to the problem, was excited about the product idea, and was also interested in doing something different from her day job, which she was starting to get bored with. She agreed to join the project, but planned to keep her day job, which means I get maybe eight hours of her time a week. 
Jen and I get along very well. We're both Canadian, she's very logical, direct, and we're both pretty intense people. So when we do something, we go all the way. I was pretty excited to have landed my first partner after only a few weeks. A few weeks later, I met with Victor, who's an engineer I worked with seven years ago. When we worked together back then, he was a 20-something digital nomad traveling around the world with his girlfriend while working remotely. I remember being really impressed with him. Even though he was inexperienced, he delivered tons of code, was really enthusiastic about learning new stuff, and was unafraid to jump into any part of the code base to make things happen, which seems like a really good characteristic to have in a startup. When I reached out to him over email, he got back to me really quickly to say he was interested. We set up a Zoom call to catch up, and I learned that he's now married to that girlfriend and they have a three-year-old daughter. He works as a freelance engineer, has a flexible schedule, and he's got the time for a side project. So he was excited about the idea and said he's in. After Victor signed on, I was pretty much on cloud nine. Within three weeks of starting this project, I had identified a meaningful problem, talked to a dozen potential customers to refine it, figured out a potential solution, and recruited two co-founders who had the right tech skills to build it. I was crushing it. The next day, I set up a project kickoff to introduce Jen and Victor to each other. We talked about our personal goals on the project, key risks, requirements for an MVP, and we sketched out a rough plan of responsibilities. We talked about how much time each of us could commit to the project. I'm in it full time, and we agreed that Jen and Victor would each dedicate 8 to 10 hours per week in evenings and weekends. We agreed that Victor would drive the server development and Jen would do the app development, while I would work on product strategy, design, and growth. We agreed that before setting up a formalized corporate structure, we needed a trial period of working together so we could get to know each other. I set up a team Slack room, a GitHub, and all the latest software tools. So that night, I stayed up way too late. I was buzzing with excitement about getting this thing off the ground. Browsing Netflix, I stumbled upon a show called Halt and Catch Fire. I was brought up to believe that the things we built were the singular contributions to computers that history would remember. For a long time, it was true. How the hell did IBM find out about this? I saw it. The future. The reason we're here in the first place. But now, it's our turn. So the show takes place in Dallas, Texas in 1983, the start of the PC industry. It's about three people who start a company to reverse engineer the IBM PC in the race to build the first laptop. That was Joe McMillan, the eccentric and unstable product manager who comes up with a crazy idea and convinces two engineers and investors to join him. He sells them with his bold vision and salesmanship, but throughout the show you can't really tell if he knows what he's talking about or is just another flimsy hack. Is the universe trying to tell me something? Within the first few days, Jen quickly started checking in code and the app was starting to take shape with visible progress daily. However, the backend pieces were going pretty slowly. Victor promised the first version of the service by the end of the week, which came and went without any updates. On Monday, I checked in on the status and he mentioned he was going to deliver a few days later than expected. When it was ready on Tuesday, he wasn't able to deploy because of some permissions issue. After that was resolved, his delivery wasn't quite what we were expecting and needed to be reworked. Then we fell into a pattern. Each day, Victor promised things that were nearly ready, but they didn't end up materializing. Since he's based in Eastern Europe, we only had an hour or two of overlapping time online, which made a miscommunication or missed milestone doubly painful. Finally, after a couple of weeks of failed milestones, Jen shared her frustration with me about Victor. She was concerned about his broken promises and whether he actually was committed to the project. I assured her that he had delivered results when I worked with him previously and that we needed to give him some time. I told her I'd have to talk with him to find out what was going on. I asked Victor to do a Zoom call with me the next day. 
When we met, I asked him how he thought things were going. He thought they were going fine. I shared what I thought, that things weren't going well, and I was hoping that we'd be moving faster, and that Jen had some concerns about the quality of his deliverables so far. He was pretty defensive during the conversation, and thought it was an unfair assessment. When we started going into the details about what was going, had gone awry the last few weeks, he agreed that it wasn't ideal. I asked him if he felt he actually had the time to work on this project, and he assured me that he did, and he just didn't realize the urgency that Jen and I felt about it. He also requested that in the future we bring up concerns with him earlier rather than waiting a few weeks. I agreed. Another four days passed, and Victor was supposed to deliver a significant update to the service. When it was delivered, it didn't work as expected. Victor was offline and out of communication much of the following day. Jen and I met up the next day and agreed that this was not working. We needed to make a change. Back in the corporate world, I've had to deal with employee performance issues several times, both as a manager and with peers. Usually it's a slow process that starts with feedback on deliverables, then with one-on-ones, then getting managers involved, and then some formal HR process. You know, evidence is compiled, timing is carefully weighed. The process can take months. In this company, we don't have the luxury of months to make a decision. I have a few months to get this thing off the ground, and we need to be kicking ass from the start, not limping along. I need two partners who are as committed as I am, and it was clear to me that Victor wasn't in that place. My options were either to have another one-on-one, share more feedback, and give more time to improve, or to cut our losses and just move on immediately. We made the painful decision to part ways with Victor after only three weeks of working together. This was difficult for several reasons. I had brought Victor into the project, I considered him a friend, and knew that he had the skills to help us be successful. On the other hand, he wasn't delivering after three weeks without any sign of improvement. He was starting to frustrate Jen, and I couldn't afford to have her lose motivation either. I didn't quite understand what the root cause of the problem was, but in some ways it doesn't matter. I set up a Zoom meeting with him the next day. I rehearsed the conversation before we met. I wanted to phrase things in a way that were clear, but also kept us on positive terms. I had flashbacks to people that I had let go in the corporate world. Of course, in those cases, I had an HR rep and a manager coaching me on what to say and what not to say. This time, I'm on my own. When we finally met, his video wasn't working due to a poor connection, which made it easier, I guess. I didn't actually have to look him in the eye. I began by thanking him for agreeing to work with us and for all of his work so far. But I told him that things aren't working as far as delivery of his part, and that since I had urgency on this project, I thought we shouldn't work together going forward. He told me that he was disappointed, but not that surprised with my decision. He thanked me for the opportunity, and he asked me to keep him updated on how things are going. He made it super easy on me, which in some ways makes it more painful. He was a respectful person to the very end, which is one of the reasons I wanted to work with him in the first place. One month in, and shit is getting real. Mm -hmm.